Well, we are continuing tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, tonight we're going to look at the subject of marriage and divorce. I have taught on this, in fact, fairly recently, but uh, I'm sure you don't remember that. But uh, anyway, we're going to go back over that tonight. Uh, this is section right in the middle of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16. So that's what we'll be reading tonight. Let's stand together in honor of the word. Let's read it. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage, in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you that your word addresses every area of life and even these specific situations that uh, the Apostle Paul addressed here in the first letter to the Corinthians. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, follow your instructions and honor you in the area of uh, marriage and divorce, that we would know what your word teaches, that we would do what your word says. And, Lord, we know that if we do things your way, that we have your blessing. And, uh, Lord, we, we thank you that you have not only given us these instructions, but... Uh, you have given us your grace to live by. And, Lord, we know that marriage at times can be challenging. And yet, Lord, uh, we have your grace as believers, and we can overcome um, obstacles and we can deal with problems. And, and so, Lord, we pray that we would be people who honor you with our marriages, with our families. And, uh, Lord, that uh, as we uh, seek to be a, a church that's pleasing in your sight, help us also to insist that we uh, follow these principles and live according to your word. So, Lord, we pray again tonight as we go through this passage that, that you would help us. And, Lord, as we worship, that our hearts would just be filled with gratitude and we would express to you our thanksgiving, our praise. And, uh, Lord, that we would uh, sing with uh, hearts of, of rejoicing tonight. So, Lord, again, we, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons why a study of the book of 1 Corinthians is so relevant 
is because of the issues that Paul addresses in this book. And, of course, the issue of marriage and divorce has always been an important issue for believers of any age. And as I'm sure you know, divorce has now pretty much become the norm in our society. Very few marriages last and very few homes are completely intact for good. And this, I believe, has taken a great toll on our society and has devastated many children, not to mention their parents. And sadly, the statistics for Christians have not been much different from that of unbelievers. And yet the Bible is very clear on God's will concerning marriage and divorce. The Apostle Paul has given us clear instructions on this aspect of life. He deals with this in 1 Corinthians 7, and we read it a few minutes ago, but I want to walk through it. This section of Scripture has a very simple outline. Verses 8 and 9 comprise a word to the unmarried. Verses 10 and 11, a word to the married. And verses 12 through 16, a word to those who are married to unbelievers. So let's begin tonight by looking at a word to the unmarried. Look with me at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is not good or that it is good for them if they remain even as I. What does Paul mean here? Well, we looked at this last week. As I'm sure you know, Paul was a single adult at this particular time. He probably had been single during the entire time of his ministry, but it is likely that he was married at one point because in all probability his wife either died or maybe she left him when he became a Christian. But the reason we know he was likely married primarily is because Not only was he a Jewish rabbi, but he was also part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and being married was a requirement for that. But Paul's message here is that if you are single and you have the gift of celibacy, that is, you are able to practice self-control in the area of sexual morality, then being single can allow you more freedom in ministry. And therefore, you can possibly be more effective for the Lord. We have to believe that part of uh, Paul's freedom to go in all over the world and plant churches had to do with the fact that he didn't have a family to support. He was single, and so he had that freedom to do so. Of course, the Bible also emphasizes the fact that two are better than one, And that there is greater power for ministry by being married. But the truth of the matter is, those who are married have other responsibilities, such as raising children and meeting the needs of their spouse. And therefore, they may not have the same level of freedom that a single person would have. And so Paul says, it's good that you would be as I am. 
We also need to understand that Paul's comments here in Corinth had a special context. There were those in Corinth who were advocating total celibacy as a virtue. And some were even advocating celibacy for married couples. There were those who believed that sexual intimacy was evil, even for married couples, and that total sexual abstinence was the only way to true spiritual maturity. And, of course, Paul set them straight on that in the previous section we looked at last time, verses 1 through 7. He said that being single is not more spiritual than being married, and that those who are married should not be practicing sexual abstinence except in certain situations for short periods of time. But there were others in Corinth who believed that if you were not married, something was wrong with you. There were no doubt those in the congregation who were putting pressure on all the single adults to get married. And I'm sure there was no shortage of matchmaking going on in that congregation. But Paul was telling them it's okay to remain single. There's not anything wrong with you if you do. Singleness is a respectable state in the eyes of God as long as you stay sexually pure. Now, Paul is not the only one who spoke on this subject. Jesus Christ himself taught on this issue in Matthew 19, 3 and following. In fact, turn with me to Matthew 19 for a moment. Beginning in verse 3, we read, And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, where is that from? Genesis chapter 2. By the way, young people, notice it says, God made them with two sexes, male and female. It's one or the other. There's, there's not all these other options. It's male or female. Look at verse 6. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And I'm sure you've heard that verse quoted at a wedding somewhere along the way. That is a key principle of marriage, the principle of oneness, of a husband and wife becoming one. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife 
except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying really the same thing Paul was saying. That there are some who are able to remain single and not fall into sexual temptation. And there are others who cannot, and therefore they should get married. Now, of course, Jesus also had some very important words about divorce here. We're going to come back to those in a few minutes. But back to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 7. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And as the New American Standard reads, that, of course, means to burn with passion. It is better to get married than to fall into sexual immorality. And as we mentioned last time, sexual sin is is such a, a serious sin, not only in the eyes of God, but it goes to the very core of our being, and it brings much guilt with it. And so it would be better, he says, to get married than to uh, to fall into sexual immorality. Now, I'm, I'm really wanting to chase some rabbits at this point. Uh, I was all, almost tempted to, to go and uh, talk about something else, but I'm going to stay on track uh, tonight, and I want to keep marching through this. So he has a word, first of all, to the unmarried. Second, he has a word to the married, a word to the married. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. Now, this is very clear, and yet it is amazing how much confusion there is about this. What Paul has in mind here is a married couple in which both the husband and the wife are Christians. The reason we know that he's speaking to Christians here is because he's giving them instructions And Paul never does that with unbelievers. So we're assuming this is a husband and a wife. They're both believers. He's giving them instructions. He's instructing them as far as how to be disciples of Christ. And he's basically saying that for two people who are both Christians, there is no legitimate biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. That's pretty much what he's saying. And by the way, before some of you men start thinking, well, it only talks about the wife leaving, so it doesn't apply to me. Let me just say, this goes both ways. 
it applies equally to whichever partner leaves the marriage. The reason it is given the wording that it's given here is because in that day and time, it was primarily the wife that was sent away and not the husband. It was rarely, if never, the other way around. But this would apply biblically to either one, either spouse. Now, the Bible tells us that it was never God's will or design for marriage that divorce ever take place. It's not God's design for divorce ever to take place. We did not see an exception clause in that passage that we read earlier in Matthew 19. Jesus said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It was only because of the hardness of men's hearts that Moses ever allowed divorce. It wasn't God's design. It is not God's perfect will. But God has allowed this as part of his uh, permissive will. This is not God's design. God never intended for divorce to be a part of the deal. In fact, in Malachi 2.16, it says, God speaking, for I hate divorce, declares, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. I hate divorce. And by the way, that same verse also says that God hates domestic violence. But we must understand it has never been God's will for married people to get a divorce. And what we see from Scripture is that God allowed it because of the hardness of men's hearts. You say, now wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying to me that God tolerates and gives permission for something that he hates? That's exactly what I'm saying. Divorce is part of his permissive will. It is not his perfect will. In fact, all sin would fall under this category. We should not really be surprised by this because God hates all sin, and yet men continue to go on sinning. It is not God's perfect will that we sin, and yet many times we do sin. It's not God's perfect will that any should perish, and yet men go on perishing. They reject his offer of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. They continue in unbelief. Listen, there are a number of things that break the heart of God and are outside of his perfect will for us, and yet he makes provision for it because we don't always do his perfect will. This is his permissive will. And although God is against divorce, remember, God hates all sin. So be careful to put divorce in a special category. It's sin like any other sin. He has promised to forgive our sins when we acknowledge them before him and to remove them as far as the east is from the west. All sin can be forgiven. Divorce is no exception to this. 
divorce can be forgiven. We should never put divorce into some kind of special class of sin or treat it as if it is the unpardonable sin. It is not. Although it does carry with it some very painful consequences. So we have to keep that in mind. Listen, if you have divorced for any other reason than what Scripture allows, confess it to God as sin and ask His forgiveness. God will forgive you. Don't rationalize it. Don't give God your list of reasons why. Just confess it. Acknowledge it. And then ask the Lord to forgive you. Uh, We know that uh, God always forgives sin. This is no exception to that. And by the way, if you cannot forgive yourself or an unbiblical divorce, then you're doing something even God does not do because He does not hold it against you. He does not hang on to it and hold it over your head. He forgives and He forgets in the sense of completely removing the guilt. Now, someone might say, well, what does it mean when it says that it was because of the hardness of hearts that Moses permitted divorce. Here's what it means. When someone has a soft heart, it means they immediately obey what God has revealed as His will in His Word. They have a soft heart. They're receptive. They're ready to obey. So when someone has a hard heart... It is the opposite. It means they are no longer listening to God's instructions or they have determined that they are not going to do what God has said. They have a hardened heart. And I believe that what we have here in 1 Corinthians 7 is an acknowledgement by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that in the real world, people do not always do The will of God. Sometimes we harden our hearts and do what we choose to do. I mean, I've had people tell me they know what the Bible says, but they're going to do what they choose to do. In essence, they're saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to go my own way. God's word to Christian couples is very simple. Unless there has been sexual infidelity, if you are married, stay married. That, that's, that's the word. Now, Paul also adds one other exception in this chapter, which is if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever chooses to divorce you, then you let them go and you are free to remarry. That is the only other exception. But divorce, for any other reason, is sin. And God hates it. You say, well, what about two Christians who are incompatible? Paul said in Ephesians 4, put up with one another. Put up with one another. Resolve your issues. You know, you're two believers. Ephesians 4, 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing forbearance to one another in love. 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a word to you, husband or wife. Put up with one another. You're not incompatible. You're, you're believers. Two believers cannot be incompatible. You're both saints. You're both members of the body of Christ. This just doesn't apply to believers, to Christians. Now, you say, well, what if I'm in a miserable marriage? What should I do? Uh, you know, there, there are problem marriages. Let me give you some practical guidelines here. And I, I went over this about a year ago, uh, so this might just be reviewed to you. But let me just give you some guidelines here, uh, some things to keep in mind. Number one, confess any sin that is adding to your marital problems. You see, even though these are two Christians, we know Christians are not perfect. We continue to sin. And so even in marriage, we sin against one another as in any relationship. And so that's where we need to start. If we're having any kind of problems or any kind of issue, that's where we need to start. Look at our own heart and see what what do I need to confess? What do I need to deal with in my own heart? So we first have to be willing to deal with our own sin. And troubled marriages are always two-way streets. And it takes both partners seeking to be all God wants them to be for the marriage to improve. So we've got to start first and deal with sin. Is there any sin that needs to be dealt with? <clears throat> Secondly, we need to apply scriptural principles for marriage just like we would any other problem. Get in God's Word. Study the Word. Get, uh, find out how to apply biblical principles to your marriage. If you need to... Uh, and get some good books that have been uh, written that uh, deal with what the Scripture has to say about marriage, then, then get those and read them. If you need some biblical counsel, some, someone to come alongside you and help you with that and uh, know how the Word of God applies, then uh, do that. But apply scriptural principles to your marriage. Thirdly, Look at this situation as one in which God's grace can change hearts and attitudes. This is part of the life of faith. Believe God that He can change your heart, first of all, and then your spouse. Many marriages get stuck because we are often not ready to believe that God can change the heart of our mate. And so the first thing we need to do is just begin to pray. Begin to pray and trust God and ask Him to change hearts. We often uh, want to move in with some sort of manipulation or some kind of threat rather than giving things over to God. We want to take things into our own hands and, you know, I'll deal with this. I'll fix this. We need to turn it over to God and trust it to God if, Believe that He can change the heart of our spouse. And then finally, look at this as an opportunity to obey God in a difficult situation. We have various situations in life. Some of them are not 
easy. Some of them are difficult. And we need to glorify God in those difficult situations. And this is one of those. If you have a troubled marriage, uh, problems going on in your marriage, this is an opportunity for you to glorify God in a difficult situation. And remember, God always rewards obedience, especially when it's not easy to obey. So regardless of what your spouse does, you determine you're going to obey God. You're going to follow God. You're going to do His will. So these are some things to keep in mind. But I want us to go back now to 1 Corinthians 7 and look at verse 11. Notice what it says in parentheses. The question comes up, what if there is hardness of heart and a Christian partner leaves the marriage anyway? On this, we have a clear word. Notice what it says. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, again, this could apply to either spouse, husband or wife. If there is hardness of heart and a Christian couple ends up getting a divorce, the one who initiates the divorce has two options. They can remain unmarried, they can remain single, or they can remarry their spouse. The only two options. Unless, you know, check me out. Am I reading something here? Are you seeing something that's different? The last part of the verse makes it clear that this applies equally to the husband as to the wife. The hope is that with the separation, there will be time to heal from emotional wounds and that reconciliation is still possible. So that's why the instruction is remain single, don't don't get remarried, or you can remarry your former spouse. And of course, someone will say, well, what if you remarry anyway? Well, then you have not only gotten out of God's will, but you have also committed the sin of adultery. And if you continue down that path of sin, it will lead to much destruction in your life. And hopefully, at that point, you'll have some believers that will hold you accountable. And there'll be some church discipline, and there'll be some um, accountability there. Now, you may not like this, but this is what the Word of God says. The consequences of violating this biblical principle will be great. There will be a great cost for, for disobeying the Lord in this regard. Now, someone might ask, but what if you're married to a Christian and they divorce you? Are you then free to remarry? I think this is the most difficult situation of all. And we're not really given clear instruction on this. We do have instructions on when an unbeliever divorces a believer, but we don't seem to have anything on when one believer divorces another believer. Paul does tell us that if an unbeliever chooses to leave a believer, then the believer is free to remarry. But in this case, all I can do is give you my opinion. 
And I'm not saying this dogmatically here because I don't believe Scripture is clear on this. But I believe that in this case, neither party is free to remarry. And even though there is one party who seems to be the, quote, innocent party here, the main reason I believe that is because I believe that in the eyes of God, this marriage marriage union has never been severed. As long as there is no infidelity, the marriage is still intact from God's perspective. And the second reason I believe that is because there's still an opportunity for God to change hearts and to restore the marriage. So I don't believe there's freedom to remarry in that instance. However, once the divorcing party remarries or the bond is broken through infidelity, then it is a different story. At this point, I believe it becomes like the situation where an unbeliever chooses to leave the marriage. The bond has now been broken, and therefore the so-called innocent party has the right to remarry. Again, that's my opinion, uh, just based on uh, some reading and some study. But please understand... You've got to take that for whatever it's worth. And I think this is the one situation that's not clearly covered here. And I sometimes have to wrestle with this as a pastor because people come to me for counsel and I don't have a verse that I can go to on this. But here's what I believe is generally true. I believe a Christian should do everything possible to keep his or her marriage intact. That's number one. And even after divorce, he or she should do everything possible to reconcile with his ex-husband or ex-wife. However, once he or she remarries, then the person is free to seek a godly spouse and to rebuild his or her own life. Now, I don't think this is God's perfect will, but it's part of his permissive will. In fact, some of the godliest, faithful Christians that I know are in this situation. They're in a second marriage, and they are devoted to Christ and to his church and to their marriage partner. And remember, God's grace is amazing. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin And His grace can enable a new marriage to be established that is according to His plan for marriage. Well, Paul's last words of instructions here are a word to those who are married to unbelievers. And I think I have three minutes left. I think we're going to go over. Look at verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, but if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. Verse 13 continues the thought, and the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Now, back in verse 10, 
Paul said, not I, but the Lord. Here he says, I say, not the Lord. Does this mean this part is not inspired? No. What he's saying here, I believe, is that whereas before he was dealing with something that the Lord Jesus directly addressed in Matthew 19, here he's addressing something that Jesus did not specifically speak of. But this is just as much a part of the divinely inspired Word of God as that. Jesus may not have taught on this specific situation in his earthly ministry, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through the Apostle Paul to give us divine guidance. This doesn't mean this is Paul's opinion here. It doesn't mean we can decide if we want to follow this or not. This is God's word through Paul, and we must obey it. It is authoritative. If you are married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever is content to remain married to you, you do not have a choice. You are to remain married to them. And by the way, the assumption here is that the one spouse has become a Christian since they were married. And the reason for this assumption is because the Bible clearly teaches that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, no Christian should ever marry an unbeliever. They're to marry a Christian. If you're not yet married, according to Scripture, you're not to marry an unbeliever. But if you are already married and one of you becomes a Christian and the other does not, that in itself is not grounds for divorce. You see, there was an argument that was going on in the church at Corinth. The argument went something like this. Some were saying that if Paul was telling them that having sexual intercourse with a temple prostitute defiled their bodies, then it must also be true that sexual intercourse with an unbelieving spouse also was a defilement of the body. Paul says that's not true. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. In fact, not only... Does Paul say that that person is sanctified? He also goes on to say that they have a great opportunity to eventually become a Christian themselves. Paul says that if you're married to an unbeliever and they are content to stay in that marriage, then don't divorce them. But he goes on to say in verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If that unbelieving spouse chooses to divorce you, don't contest it. Don't fight it in court. Don't beg and plead and tell them that you'll give up your Christian walk in order to keep them. Let them go. Let them go. You're now free of this bond in the eyes of God. You are free to remarry. And by the way, 
Paul also refutes the argument that says, I can't let them go because if I do, they will never get saved. He says in verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There is no guarantee either way. There Staying with you does not guarantee they will get saved. Their departing from you does not necessarily mean they won't get saved. Let me just close tonight by saying that in my study of Scripture, I see three biblical grounds for divorce and four biblical grounds for remarriage. Let me just give these to you quickly. The first one is the one we just talked about. If an unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, you are free from the marital bond and free to remarry. The second one is the exception Jesus gave in Matthew 19. It's also spoken of in Mark in Matthew 5 and in Mark 10. It is the biblical grounds of adultery. But even here, the word means a lifestyle of immorality. The case of adultery does not necessarily mean that you have to divorce your spouse. I have seen a number of modern-day Hoseas who have remained faithful to an unfaithful spouse and have won them back into a solid marriage. A third biblical exception is when you are married and divorced before you become a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5 says that when you become a Christian, you become a brand new creature. All the old things are passed away. Everything has become new. That means your past life is buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness, and you are free to begin again with a clean slate. And then the last exception should be obvious And that is when your spouse dies. The Bible gives you freedom at that point to remarry if you choose, although it is not necessary for you to choose to do so. And if you marry, you must marry a believer. Well, one last word of warning in regard to marriage and divorce. Be careful about looking for a way out instead of a way through. There is much pain and destruction that comes with divorce. And it is always easy to rationalize when you want out of a difficult marriage. Very carefully consider what best honors Christ and is pleasing to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray This evening, you would help us to follow your principles in regard to divorce and remarriage and, in fact, marriage to begin with. And, Lord, we know you have instituted marriage and uh, that you are the one who determines uh, what we should do and how we should respond to these difficulties. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to honor you with our marriages. And, Lord, that we would follow your principles. Help us to be your people And help us to serve you faithfully this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.